I am Dr. Feng Xianqian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The first article of May 2018 issue of the Heart Rhythm is an obituary for Dr. Arthur Moss, written by Dr. Wojciech Zariba. Dr. Moss died on February 14, 2018 at age of 86. He was the first in reporting successful closed chest massage during cardiopulmonary resuscitation. He coined the term echocardiogram, which is now widely used throughout medicine. He reported the first case left cer- uh, cervical thoracic ganglion ablation to prevent recurrent syncope in a patient with long QT syndrome. He was the principal investigator of matted series of trials that shaped the practice of ICDs. In addition to his many scientific achievements, Dr. Moss was also a loving husband and a father to his family and a mentor to many, many leaders in cardiac electrophysiology. Dr. Moss is also a personal friend who has provided me with assistance and guidance over the past many years. He was a member of Heart Rhythm Editorial Board since 2004 and has reviewed 86 manuscripts for the journal, with the last review submitted in August 2017. I will miss him dearly. The second article is a letter from Heart Rhythm Society President Dr. George Van Heer and the CEO Mr. James Youngblood. They highlight the global growth of the society and encourage the readers to participate in the upcoming scientific session to be held in Boston in May 2018. The featured article this month is titled Defibrillation Testing is Mandatory in Patients with Subcutaneous ICD to Confirm Appropriate VF Detection by Le Poulain de from Belgium. An author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found on the www.hotrhythmjournal.com website. This is a multicenter study to assess the quality of sensing during induced ventricular fibrillation, or VF. The authors studied 137 patients underwent the induction of VF at the end of subcutaneous ICD implantation. After VF induction, optimal detection was noted in 29%, undersensing with moderate prolongation of time to therapy in 51%, undersensing with significant prolongation of time to therapy in 14%, while absence of therapy or prolonged time to therapy due to noise over sensing 6%. (coughs) The first shock successfully defibrillated the VF in 92% of the patients. In the remaining 8% of patients, 6% required the second shock and 2% needed an external shock for conversion. This data suggests that in spite of preoperative screening, there is still a need for systematic intraoperative defibrillation testing in patients with subcutaneous ICDs. The next article is castor ablation or atrial fibrillation in patients with heart failure and the preserved ejection fraction, written by Blackmire et al. from Duke University. The authors performed a retrospective study of 230 patients with heart failure who underwent AF ablation 
including 42% with heart failure of reduced ejection fraction, and 58% with heart failure preserved ejection fraction. They found that castor ablation of AF seems to have similar effectiveness in patients with heart failure, regardless of the presence of systolic dysfunction. There were no significant differences in procedural characteristics, arrhythmia-free recurrence, of functional improvements between patients with heart failure preserved ejection fraction and those with heart failure or reduced ejection fraction. This paper is complementary to a recently published CASEL AF trial, which only included patients with left ventricular ejection fraction of 25% or less. However, the Blackmire study was a retrospective analysis. A prospective randomized trial is still needed to determine the benefit of AF ablation in patients with heart failure or preserved ejection fraction. The Blackmire paper is accompanied by editorial from Nasir Marouche, the lead author of the CASEL AF trial. Next up is a paper titled Lack of Prognostic Value of Atrial Arrhythmia Inducibility and Change in Inducibility Status after castor ablation of atrial fibrillation by Santagheri et al. from University of Pennsylvania. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the prognostic role of non-inducibility and of a change of inducibility status after ablation of atrial fibrillation. The authors studied 305 consecutive patients undergoing AF ablation they found that non-inducibility of atrial arrhythmia or change in inducibility status after PV isolation and non-PV trigger ablation is not associated with long-term freedom from recurrent arrhythmia. The paper is accompanied by an editorial from Jane and Miller who pointed out that non-inducibility has not been reliable in predicting the long-term success of atrial flutter or even ventricular tachycardia ablations. They propose that hard endpoints, such as bidirectional block along lines of ablation and elimination of rotors or other substrate, should be used to guide AF ablation. The next paper is titled Fast Non-Clinical Ventricular Tachycardia Inducible After Ablation in Patients with Structural Heart Disease, colon, Definition and the Clinical Implications by Watanabe et al. from Leiden University Medical Center, Leiden, the Netherlands. The purpose of this study was to propose a patient-specific definition for FAST-VT based on the individualized ventricular refractory period. They studied 191 patients with VT ablation. Among them, 30 remained inducible exclusively for fast VT and 40 were inducible for slow VT. They found that inducibility of exclusively fast VT after ablation is associated with low VT recurrence. Previously, the fast VT is often defined by arbitrary VT rate. This paper takes a personalized medicine approach by defining the fast VT according to the, the individual ventricular refractory period. This paper is hypothesis generating and may help promote a personalized medicine approach 
to the management of potentially dangerous cardiac arrhythmia. Next article is perioperative electrophysiology study in tetralogy of low patients undergoing pulmonary valve replacement will identify those at high risk for subsequent ventricular tachycardia. The paper is written by Sandu et al. from University of Colorado. The study included a prospective cohort of 70 patients with tetralogy of a load undergoing an EP study at the time of pulmonary valve replacement. Among them, 34 has induceable sustained VT and 14 underwent empirical cryoablation. Despite empirical VT cryoablation at the time of pulmonary valve replacement, a high percentage of patients remained inducible for VT after surgery. The authors conclude that in this high-risk cohort, post-pulmonary valve replacement EVEP study is important to identify patients at risk of VT despite cryoablation. Patients with tetralogy followed are at risk of developing sustained VT during follow-up. While the study showed the incomplete success of cryoablation, 55% of patients in the surgical cohort had successful elimination of inducible VT. This finding reserved some room for optimism about the ablation therapy in general for tetralogy of followed cases. The next paper is titled Accurate Localization and Caster Ablation of Supraoproceptal Accessory Pathway by Liu et al. from Zhejiang University in China. The authors identified 11 patients with supraoproceptal accessory pathways in 129 consecutive patients who underwent caster ablation. The pathways were located in three distinct regions. Number one, superior to the his bundle recording site at the tricuspid annulus. Number two, behind the his bundle recording site adjacent to the right atrial aspect of the non-coronary aortic cusp. And three, the true parahis uh, bundle region. The electrocardiogram of all five manifest, manifest accessory pathways conformed to the typical anteroceptal accessory pathway pattern, including a positive delta wave in these 1, 2, AVF, and AVL, a narrow positive delta wave in lead V1, and a precordial QRS transition at lead V3. All accessory pathways were successfully eliminated by castor ablation. Castor ablation of the parahesian accessory pathways may be complicated by AV block. Careful mapping and the detailed understanding of the anatomy of this region as well as distinct electrocardiographic characteristics are essential to eliminate such accessory pathways safely and effectively. And this also reported no AV block in their study. Next up is permanent his bundle pacing, colon, long-term lead performance and the clinical outcomes by Vijay Yaraman et al. from Geisinger Heart Institute, Pennsylvania. The authors compared the long-term outcomes between permanent his bundle pacing and right ventricular pacing. 
This bundle pacing was attempted in 94 consecutive patients and was successful in 75. Right ventricular pacing was performed in 98 patients at a different hospital. They found that permanent his bundle pacing was associated with reduction in death or heart failure hospitalization during long-term follow-up compared to right ventricular pacing. However, his bundle pacing was associated with higher rates of lead revisions and generator change. This paper suggests that his bundle pacing can prevent pacing-induced cardiomyopathy a prospective randomized uh, multicenter trial should be performed to test the hypothesis. The next paper is titled 30-day readmissions after cardiac implantable electronic devices in the United States, colon, insights from the nationwide readmissions database by Patel et al., Lehigh Valley Health Network, Pennsylvania. The study cohort consisted of patients who underwent cardiac implantable electronic device uh, implantation 2014, identified from the National Readmission Database. Readmission occurred in 12% of uh, the 70,000 cases in the cohort. Female gender, atrial fibrillation flutter, acute renal failure, coronary artery disease, and device-related complications on admission were associated with increased admission rate. In contrast, device placement on the day of admission and hospital procedure volume of greater than 168 per year and privately insured patients, patients were independent predictors of reduced 30-day readmissions. Readmission within 30 days resulted in additional median charges of $30,692 per patient. Some of these factors, such as the timing of surgery and the procedural volume of the hospital, may be managed to reduce the chance of readmission. Because Affordable Care Act identified 30-day readmission as a measure for quality of care, these data may be important in guiding quality improvement projects in healthcare facilities. Next up is a paper titled The Profile of Patients with Bugatti Syndrome Presenting with Their First Documented Arrhythmic Event, colon, data from the survey on arrhythmic events in Bugatti Syndrome by Milman et al. from Tel Aviv University, Israel. A survey of 23 centers from 10 Western and 4 Asian countries enabled data collection of 678 patients with Bugatti syndrome who exhibited their arrhythmic events. They found that the patients with Bugatti syndrome was the first arrhythmic event documented after prophylactic ICD implantation exhibited their arrhythmic event at a later age with a higher instance of positive family history of sudden death and SCM5A mutations as compared with those presenting with aborted cardiac arrest. They also found that Asian Bugatti syndrome might have a more uh, malignant presentation than Europeans. A major clinical implication of this study is that risk stratification in Bugatti syndrome is still difficult in spite of the available guidelines. Major efforts are still necessary 
for improving arrhythmic risk stratification in Bugatti syndrome. Next paper is cardiac rhythm and the pacemaking abnormalities in patients affected by endemic pemphigus in Colombia may be the result of uh, deposition of autoantibodies complement fibrinogen and other molecules. Bevelez et al. from Georgia Dermatopathology Associates, Atlanta. The authors reported 30 patients with endemic pemphigus and 30 controls. They found that the main ECG abnormalities seen in the endemic pemphigus patients were sinus bradycardia, left bundle branch block, left posterior fascicular block, and left anterior fascicular block compared with controls. Interestingly, one-third of the patients displayed polyclonal autoimmune bodies against the sinoatrial and or AV nodes and the his bundle. Deposition of any autoantibodies, complement, and other inflammatory molecules is likely the cause of the ECG abnormalities. Autoimmunity can affect both electrical imp uh, impulse generation and propagation. Further development in this field may provide novel insights and therapeutic approaches to cardiac bradyarrhythmia. Next paper is defibrillator shocks and their effect on objective and subjective patient outcomes, colon, results of the pain-free SST clinical trial. The study was authored by Sears et al. from East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. The study included 2,770 patients. The patient's average daily activity was 185 minutes per day. Activity was significantly reduced after an ICD shock and recovered to a normal level after about 90 days. An ICD shock was also associated with reduced quality of life and increased anxiety. Shock anxiety remained significantly elevated at 24 months, regardless of whether the shocks were appropriate or inappropriate. The authors conclude that ICD shocks have a long-lasting adverse effect on both objective device-measured physical activity and subjective patient-reported outcomes of quality of life and shock anxiety. This study provides strong evidence to support the detrimental effects of both appropriate and inappropriate shocks. The next paper is a basic science study titled Estradiol Upregulates L-type calcium channels via membrane-bound estrogen receptor slash phosphoenositide 3 kinase AKT cyclic AMP response element binding protein signaling pathway by Yan et al. from Guangzhou University of Science and Technology, Wuhan, China. In long QT syndrome type 2, women are more prone than men to the lethal arrhythmia to start upon. The purpose of this study was to investigate the molecular mechanisms where 17 beta estradiol upregulates L-type calcium curve. The study used the RED model. The results show that estradiol upregulates CAV 1.2 alpha 1C and L-type calcium current via plasma membrane estrogen receptor 
and by activating, activating PIA3K, AKT, and the Krebs signaling. These results provide new insights into the increased L-type calcium current in female versus males. Interruption of these signals, uh, signaling pathways may reduce risk of ventricular arrhythmias in type 2 long QT syndrome in women. Next up is structural and functional remodeling of the atrial ventricular node with aging in rats. The role of hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide gated and rounding into channels. By Saeed et al. from Manchester Heart Center, United Kingdom. Aim of the study was to investigate structural and functional remodeling in the AV junction with aging. The study was done in male Wistar Hanover rats, some aged three months and some two years old. They found that there was prolongation of the AH interval, Wenke-Bach cyclones, and AV nodal ERP with aging. Immunofluorescence revealed that with aging, Connexin 43, HCM4, NAV1.5, and RYR2 downregulate in the regions of AV junction and connexin 40, circa 2A, and CAV1.3 upregulate. Agent results in cellular hypertrophy, loosely packed cells, a decrease in the number of nuclei, and an increase in collagen content. The authors conclude that heterogeneous iron channel expression changes were observed in the AV junction with aging. A new finding is that HCN and the uh, type 2 rounding receptor play an important role in AV node dysfunction with aging. The next paper is titled Role of Apamine Sensitive Small Conductance Calcium Activated Potassium Currents in Long Term Cardiac Memory in Rabbits by Ying et al. from the Craner Institute of Cardiology. Indiana University. Apamine-sensitive small conductance calcium activity K current, or IKAS, is upregulated during ventricular pacing and masks short-term cardiac membrane. The purpose of this study was to determine the role of IKAS in long-term cardiac memory in rabbits with three to five weeks of ventricular pacing using optical mapping techniques. The authors found that chronic ventricular pacing increases calcium transients at late activation sites, which activates IKAS to maintain repolarization reserve. IKAS blockade increases VF vulnerability in chronically paced rabbit ventricles. This study indicates that cardiac memory is a consequence of calcium accumulation at late activation site. Chronic left ventricular calcium accumulation may play a role in the detrimental effects of RV pacing. However, the duration of pacing in this study was not long enough to produce pacing-induced cardiomyopathy to test the latter hypothesis. The next study is titled Sympathetic Nerve Blocks Promote Anti-Inflammatory Response by Activating JAK2 STAT3 mediated signaling cascade in red myocarditis model, colon, a novel mechanism with clinical implications. The paper is authored by Park et al., Yonsei University College of Medicine, 
Seoul, South Korea. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the effect of left stelectomy on cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway using red experimental autoimmune myocarditis models. That model was produced by injecting 2 mg of porcine cardiac myosin into the footpaths of the rat. They found that, that in the experimental autoimmune myocarditis model, left stelectomy increased survival of the rats while showing antiarrhythmic effects with reduced inflammation by activation of project 2 stat 3 mediated signaling cascade. These findings suggest that in addition to reducing the levels of norepinephrine and epinephrine, left stelectomy also activates the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. The anti-inflammatory effects may play a role in the antiarrhythmic effects of left stelectomy. The next article is titled Communication of genetic information to families with inherited rhythm disorders by Burns et al. from Centenary Institute, Sydney, Australia. Communication of genetic information is complex, and uh, the responsibility to convey this information to the family most often lies with the probate. Current practice falls short, requiring additional support from the clinician and multidisciplinary team. In this review, the authors provide insight into the challenges and provide practical advice for clinicians to support effective family communication. These strategies include acknowledging and managing genetic uncertainty, genetic counseling and informed consent, and the consideration of personal and the familial barriers to effective communication. Specialized multidisciplinary clinics remain the best equipped to manage patients and families with inherited heart rhythm disorders given the need for a high level of inform information and support. In addition to the above articles this month, uh, the journal also published an unknown of the month entitled Fusion During Entrainment at the Caval Tricuspid Isthmus. What is the mechanism? A Josephson and Wellen CCG lesson titled Anterior Myocardial Infarction with High Degree AV Block in a 62-Year-Old Man. An image of high-density mapping of a single loop by atrial macro reentrant tachycardia and four EP News articles. I hope you enjoy this uh, podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pengen Chen.